This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Describing fashion. The Johnny Appleseed of dates. Skin-seeking devils. And the Pythagoreans. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of dice in sleek designer colors, the thump of beautifully painted miniatures, the crunch of rice cakes... And the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, because Peter Frampton is always in fashion, welcome us into this well-appointed gaming hut, where beloved Patreon backer Mark Kenny asks, I'm probably not the only gamer who ignored fashion in my early days, but now, when I want to paint a scene for my players, I find I lack even a rudimentary vocabulary to describe what people are wearing. Is there a way to learn enough to fake my way through this part with some elegance? Or do I just make a vague remark about Bridgerton or Zoot Suits or whatever and move on? Robin? Yeah, so fortunately, there's a vast corpus of material to draw on because this is something that costume designers for uh, film and theater need a lot of. And so there's a a lot of reference books that you can uh, go to to find descriptions of different articles of clothing and also to see that from every documented era of uh, history. And Ken, you've got a whole pile of books that would suit that purpose. Uh, my small library in my small apartment does 
not have them because I haven't quite uh, needed them, but uh, there's some uh, good recommendations just to learn about this subject and compare pictures of clothes to the names that go with them. Yeah, the um, sort of smart play with any sort of visual topic is to find out whether or not Toshin has a book on that topic. And if they do, buy the one that fits your price budget and maybe your need. If you're doing sort of a contemporary game in, you know, sort of maybe a high society Knights Black Agents or a, a Eyes Wide Shut, but instead of Fidelio, it's Mormo, that's the watchword, something like that, then 100 Contemporary Fashion Designers from Toshin. A lovely sum up edited by Terry Jones. This lets you do fashion name dropping. And I think it begins to sort of, in fact, I know it lets you begin to sort of sort out in your head the difference between a Chanel and a Vivian Wedgwood. Another sort of overview from Toshin called Fashion, a history from the 18th to the 20th century. This is a gigantic two volume set. And it's mostly the collection of the Kyoto Costume Institute which is not just Asian fashion, it's also Western fashion, but it shows that there's a good breadth going on there. Those are gigantic books, and the 20th century is just one volume, if you're doing that. The other one goes back to the 18th. And Fidon has a book entitled The Fashion Book, another big, beautiful visual compendium. And when you say visual compendium, of course, the next words to drop out of your mouth are Dorling Kindersley, and they have fashion, the definitive visual guide. And this one goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. So if I think you're looking for a one-stop shop for everything, that's a pretty strong selection. I can also recommend more than look at the picture, describe the picture. There's a couple of uh, books by Lydia Edwards called How to Read a Dress and How to Read a Suit. And that begins to get into a little more vocabulary, a little more what does your tailcoat say about you at the court of King George versus look, they wore tailcoats at the court of King George. So I think that that, if you're, if your game is within that bracket, that maybe sets you up with a little more helpful vocabulary. And at some point you're basically going to, as Robin said, you're going to have, you know, a specific costume book about whatever area you're into. And also there's going to be lots of visual representations. So for example, I'm running a game, set in Venice as soon as the Supers game ends. And sure enough, there is a book by Gary Wills called Venice, the Lion City that is keyed to paintings of Venice from the Renaissance. And this is how you can tell what people looked like and how, and what they wore and what they wanted to, you know, what face they wanted to put to the rest of the universe, which of course is the whole point of fashion in the first place. Right. Now, one of the challenges is that if you learn the vocabulary of clothing and try to convey it verbally to your players, do they know the vocabulary of clothing? Because especially for other periods, a lot of it is very technical. And certainly when I'm, you know, reading a book and it says, oh, well, he's got a Chambly hat. I have to look up what a Chambly hat looks like. Do your players, are they going to be able to take that word and turn it into an image? So you will probably also have to be serving them images of the clothing that you could, for example, you know, photograph or scan from these different reference books that you've uh, now acquired or that you can find the equivalents of on the internet and that you know how to Google image search. The challenge there is, first of all, you have to set up a mechanism to serve images to your uh, players, which may be something you already do on the reg. If not, you'll have to do it 
And also, if you have a picture of someone who doesn't look like your character that you're trying to describe, that's going to cause a disjunction because the, you know, if you just so show Joe Average, aristocrat of the 18th century, uh, wearing the outfit you want to wear, but your character looks quite different than that, while you're out of luck, they're going to visually start picturing the person in your illustration once you serve that to them. So you may also then decide to work backward from finding a picture of someone wearing the clothes you want and deciding that that's what they look like facially. And that you thought the vampire was lean and hungry, but actually he's kind of doughy and harmless looking. Right. Well, that's how he fits into the very doughy, harmless looking eras where being doughy was fashionable. Yeah. And also you can treat this like any other subject matter expertise. Maybe you've got a player or players who are more into fashion than you and let them take point in the same way that you let the gun nut take point when you've opened up the bad guy arsenal or you make the Egyptologist major in college take point when you're visiting the mummy tomb and you say, well, Steve, go ahead, set us up. What does that mummy tomb look like? You know, if Cynthia has been paying attention to fashion and you haven't, maybe let Cynthia, you say, Cynthia, these are, this is a top-notch gathering of rich degenerate witches here at Gestad in 1958 what are they wearing? And Cynthia can go on for, you know, however long I, I suspect you let Cynthia have her head in the way of subject matters experts everywhere. Right. And Cynthia will also have to serve up images to your players because they also won't know the vocabulary. Right. But the point being that, you know, your players are a resource in this as in so many other things. And if you bring them into the co-creation as much or as little as your table feels comfortable with or you feel comfortable with, then you don't have the embarrassment of describing something. And then Cynthia says, that's interesting that she's wearing last season's gown. Maybe she's a vampire. And it's like, ah, why, why do I do this to myself? (laughs) So Cynthia wouldn't do that to you. First of all, well, Cynthia is cool, but there are other Cynthia's out there. There are other Cynthia's. So the other point though, is that you wanted, if you were showing people clothing out of their context of understanding what it means, you'll also have to convey what it is that it, that clothing says about that character, right? So, first of all, anything that is described as fashion is for the rich and perhaps the nouveau riche, depending on the economy of the uh, setting you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And most other clothing is pretty utilitarian. And, uh, you know, peasant gear doesn't change a lot over decades or even centuries. And even within a gathering of people in the same economic band, you will want to convey you know, this older woman at the salon is wearing what would have been fashionable when she was young and now looks a little ridiculous versus this woman who's her contemporary wears something that is absolutely up to the moment and looks wrong on her and looks ridiculous. And the third one has a perfectly adapted modern style to her. And so you also want to think about what is it that you're saying about the characters, which is both not just about their economic status and their social position within that, but what it says about them as people. So, and there are general broad categories of, you know, this is the aggressive outlandish fashion of criminals uh, is one of the categories. Mm -hmm. This is the drab unadorned fashion of people who've been rich for a long time and don't need to show off. This is what someone who needs to establish their wealth would wear. 
and how in tune with the latest trends they are, or how indifferent to them, all of those say something about your character. So you'll want to think about, you know, is this flashy? Is this understated? And why is the person choosing to make those various choices? Yeah, if the fashion, it exists on a spectrum, just like guns, just like mummies, just like anything else that might be in a campaign from, well, of course, it's there. It's a game with people and they're wearing clothes of some sort to it is the focus of the game because it takes place in the high fashion world. We're doing, you know, you're doing a fall of Delta green blow up adventure. So everyone's a fashion model. Suddenly you have a spectrum that it exists on and you can get more or less away with stuff. The more important it is, if it becomes central to the game, then maybe think about, you know, a little Joel Schumacher wardrobe montage where you ask the player characters, you ask the players, what are you wearing? Are you going showy? Are you going old rich? Are you going desperate? Are you going sexy? Are you trying to blend into the background? Do you want to be able to, you know, take off or put on a jacket and suddenly look like a waiter? You know, what's your goal fashion wise? What do you want the clothes you're wearing to say to other people in the scene or in the campaign? Even if you're doing a game where we're going to be, you know, court intriguing for forever, that suddenly becomes an important question of how do you dress? And that becomes as essential as, you know, where do you hide the stiletto? <laughs> Sometimes it's the same question. So the degree to which it's centered in the game should also, by and large, be the degree to which the players get to make their own decisions about what do they look like? What do they carry? What can they do in a pinch? What do they know they can't pull off, but they're going to have to in order to infiltrate, you know, the butterfly ball here at the court of uh, the, the Shogun. And suddenly these uh, rough and tough Ronin have to dress up as court functionaries and they maybe can't handle it. And that becomes an important suspense point or a thrilling, you know, setup, right? Right. Players like to make choices. And uh, one choice you can have them make is, you know, which of these outfits are you wearing to the ball where you'll be spying on the uh, the bad guys? And there's a lot of archival fashion magazines online. Also, uh, movie stills mm -hmm. will give you period clothing. In some cases, that's just films that were contemporary at the time, but are now period. So an actual 60s film set in the 60s mm -hmm. or... You can also look for period films. There's lots of stills for that. That will still sort of have the problem of, you know, you're seeing the, the faces unless you blur them out. But you could present those to the players as, uh, you know, which of these three outfits do you wear? Or, you know, allow them to sort of dig in and decide, what does this say about my character? Not just about the, you're expressing things about the Game Master characters. The thing about images from movies and TV is that those are, exaggerated versions that are already making a point about the characters, but for the purposes of a role-playing scenario, that's good. The fact that they're heightened means that they are more communicative and, and say more. If you look at historical photos from an era, you will see that a lot of the big, bold fashion choices that you may be thinking about from fashion magazines or movies were not that prevalent out on the actual street, right? Lots of actual candid photos of people in the 60s, a lot of the clothing looks like it's still the style of the 50s and the 40s because fashion, except for people who are really into clothing, doesn't change all that rapidly. And whether you care about that level of realism or not, you may still find a super cool 
photo of the 60s that conveys something about the era through the way that people are wearing clothes, but it will probably actually convey something quite different than a film still from a movie that's set in swinging London in 1966. Yeah, my players in Fall of Delta Green, by the way, love figuring out what their characters are wearing, some more than others. But again, there's a lot of diving through film stills, you know, looking for what sort of thing. And also the 60s are sort of one of the eras where extreme fashion begins to be a thing. And if you are demonstrating your character's sort of flamboyance and independence from gray conformity, then they dive right for that. And that becomes a fun character moment and a way for the players to get immersed into the period without me, the GM, having to assign them homework, which they might or might not do because they're good players, but they would rather go through a hundred pictures of Anne Margaret saying, if I find a dowdy enough picture of Anne Margaret, it'll be how my character dresses, right? <laughs> Carnal knowledge. That's where you see it. There you go. Margaret. So yeah, um, like everything else, guns, art, mummies, fashion is as much as you want to make of it. It's an important part of a lot of people's lives and an important part of social uh, signaling from ancient Egypt to now. And that sounds not only like a summary, it almost sounds like the curtain pulling shut, letting us change in the privacy of another commercial for a different hut. Polygrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. Ah, the delicious aroma of cooking, or in this case, baking, tell us we've once more stepped into the food hut, where again, we're going to look back into the uh, history of food, and we're going to look at the Johnny Appleseed of the date. So Johnny Appleseed, who his real name was John Chapman, we talked about 
all the way back in episode three, because he was also three. a Swedenborgian mystic, a much less uh, mystical, but perhaps equally influential figure or uh, super influential for a while anyway, is Walter Tennyson Swingle, who is the uh, botanist and expert on plant diseases and citrus taxonomy, who introduced the date to North America, and it then enjoyed a powerful hegemony for uh, many decades over the desserts that people are uh, baking up in their kitchens. And Ken, to his friends, he wasn't known as Walter, you called him Tenny. So tell us about the story of Tenny and the date. Tenny and the date. Tenny is born in 1871. His family moves to Kansas very early. He is a child prodigy. He's going to college when he's 13. He gets his BA at 16, and he gets a job offer with the Department of Agriculture uh, in 1891. And he has to get his parents' permission. He's only 20 to take that job. They give him permission, and he goes off. Mom, Dad, can I do some agronomy? Can I do agronomy in Florida with uh, a lady? Well, anyway, the Department of Agriculture hires him. They send him to Florida, and they set him to studying oranges. And throws himself into it, begins, you know, looking at orange cultivation and decides what we really need is to do a full taxonomy of all citrus fruit so that we'll know what can be bred with what and what kind of strains we can grow, depending on a situation. For a while, the farmers are like, we really just need the one strain that we have now, and we need it not to get diseases. And he's fixing some of those diseases because it's sort of the low-hanging fruit as you will, but some of them, he really does need to do some cultivars. And that's where he's going back and forth with the farmers. And he's saying things like, we need to have maybe a a frost proof orange. And the farmers are like, are you crazy? This is Florida. And then in 1895, a hard freeze kills all the oranges. And he says, well, I told you. And that sort of gives him a little more impetus. During that period, he also takes leave of absence to study under the world's greatest fruit cytologist, at the University of Bonn in Germany, and that's where he falls in love with microscopic studies, even down to electron microscopes once those come out, of plant structures and plant, what was called germplasm back then, but is genetics now. And he rapidly becomes the leading figure in America on that. When he comes back in 1897, he instantly invents the tangelo, everyone is amazed, a new fruit, what? And he establishes the U.S. Department of Agriculture Laboratory for Foreign Seed and Plant Introduction in Miami, because when he's in Europe, he's also getting a bunch of other cool fruits and plants, especially from the Mediterranean, and he brings them to Florida, and everyone says, we could make money on that. And he says, indeed, you could. So one of the things he does is he brings table grapes to California. California had only been growing wine grapes, and he says, you know, you can eat grapes. And everyone in California says, I don't think you can. And sure enough, and he says, here, have here you go. Try these. Um, so he's going back and forth to Europe and the Mediterranean. He goes to Algeria, which is a very productive trip for him in 1900. And he brings back date palms and fig wasps, which are what are necessary for the cultivation of figs. And he says, well, according to all the textbooks, figs should never multiply. The, the, apparently something is wrong with the fig. And he goes to the peasants who are growing figs in the Ottoman Empire and he says, how are you growing figs? And they tell him, and he says, well, all right. And he writes it up and all the, this is a classic stuffy agronomist in Bonn are like, no, that could never happen. You're talking to peasants. And he says, well, on the other hand, figs. And so he brings the fig wasp to California and sure enough, 
That is what lets the Smyrna fig populate California. So suddenly, fig bars. If you like fig bars, you're welcome. Tenny did that for you. Similarly, he goes around in Algeria and gets date palms. This is something that the Department of Agriculture has actually asked him to do because they're importing a ton of dates from the Middle East. And they say, if we could grow dates as cultivar dates for individual eating as opposed to be to be mushed up into desserts then that would be great and he says fantastic i'll get on it he picks some varieties the deglet newer the medjool which is maybe the one that people have heard of the thuri well the, the, there's a story with the medjool though yeah. you're, you're jumping ahead because he wants the medjool but they say no 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 the medjool is not for you foreigner and at that time they don't let him have the the supreme date of all dates. They just give them the deglet date. And it's later in the story when he gets his hands on the medjool. Well, anyway, so he's back in America with the deglet newer, and it becomes very, very difficult to get them to ripen for some reason. He's growing them and growing them and growing them. The date guys are yelling at him and he's just about to give up. And the, you know, secretary of agriculture is coming and he knocks on the door and he says, uh, well, you gave it a good college try, Tennyson. We will be able to announce that it is impossible to grow dates in America and the problem can be shelved. And Swingle says, give me another year. And the secretary of agriculture says, you realize I'm the secretary of agriculture. You literally work for me. And he says, I can't hear you. I'm too busy growing dates. Yes, but th- that's why I'm asking. Right. So he um, uh, says we have a new experiment where we gas the dates to make them ripen with a deadly gas. Sounds dangerous and terrible, but this was the 19-teens, so people did stuff. He um, starts to gas the dates, but to get the gas bell around the date branch, they have to chop away the other date branches. And it turns out, as they're chopping away the other date branches, even without gassing anything, suddenly the dates bloom. The problem is that America is too fertile and wonderful, so the trees produce too many dates. And the dates prevent individual dates from ripening, because it doesn't give enough sugar to any individual date. It just grows lovely ornamental dates, and that's not what you want. But once you start just pruning them, you can ripen the whole crop. He's cracked the deglet newer. They send it out to California and Arizona. And by 1920, California is growing 100,000 pounds of dates from basically a zero standing start in 1900. So that's pretty good. And in 1926, to finish the date story, uh, Robin, do you want to tell this story since you found it? So in 26, a fungal pathogen, a Bayog disease, threatens the medjool with extinction. And so at that time, Tenny goes back to Algeria and the farmers say, well, our whole thing is going to be wiped out. Perhaps in a sort of a Noah's Ark kind of gesture, you could take a few cuttings. And so finally, he gets his hand on the, the queen of dates, the medjool and takes 11 cuttings back to uh, North America. And nine of those uh, sprout and grow and multiply. And that saves the medjool while it's uh, being wiped out by fungus in its uh, home territory. And so today, the vast groves of medjools in Jordan and in Israel uh, and elsewhere in the region, their ancestors are American. They lived in America for a while before then being reintroduced uh, to closer to their own uh, native habitat. It's like how all European wines are California wines now. Exactly. So this is his life, is going around, finding cool plants, bringing them to America. He brings a lot of different plants to America. Some of them, other people have grown pistachios, but he brings different breeds of pistachios. Same deal. He's doing that with Basically, any sort of oddly subtropical fruit you've heard of, 
probably Tenny is the guy that either brought it or brought the best cultivar of it to America. In his free time, he has learned Chinese and is reading Chinese botany texts, and he's impressed by how full and complete and uh, detailed these Ming Dynasty and even earlier Chinese botany texts are, and he keeps writing to the Library of Congress and saying, send me such and such a foundational Chinese botany text, and the Library of Congress writes back and says, we don't have that book, we're the Library of Congress not the library of Beijing, what's going on with you? And so eventually he makes friends with the librarian of Congress because he keeps showing up and he's going to China for botany anyway for to get plants. But he says, hey, while I'm in China, how about I pick up this immense list of books that you apparently don't have? And the librarian of Congress says, that sounds perfect. Here's a government commission you can show to people. So he buys botany texts, encyclopedias, gazetteers, herbals, almanacs, and if he can't buy the book, what he can do is hire a copyist to make a hand copy of the book and then ship that back to America. And this is the almost the only place where he gets to anything Lovecraftian, but I'm going to mention it because it's in the 20s. He collects books called Tsung Shu, which are books that collect other books. Books that are out of print, or not out of print, but out of circulation, are often only found in these Tsung Shu copies. And so he buys those on the theory that well, there's a hundred books in here. Maybe one is about plants and sends it back. Uh, he visits China again in 1926 when he's on a official government trip to Tokyo. He also goes to Korea. He's buying plant books from Vietnam by the end of his career. By 1928, he had bought, donated, organized, or accessioned about 80,000 Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Vietnamese titles for the Library of Congress. He discovered metaxenia in plants, which is how the when the pollen influences the shape of the of the fruit, people said that's superstitious nonsense. That's Lamarckianism. And he says, well, but it happens. And uh, you guys figure out why. But again, it takes another 10 years. But everyone starts saying, yep, I guess Medicini is a thing. In 1934, new dealers say this giant, fully successful plant importing thing that the government does is a waste of taxpayer money. And they abolish it. And they shut down all of his programs. They reduce him to one researcher at the Department of Agriculture. They can't fire him, but they can fire everyone associated with him and take away all his authority to do anything. And then to add, you know, insult to injury, they say, we're not paying for the Miami location anymore. We're going to move all your plants to Orlando, Florida. And they dig them all up, move them to Orlando and don't water them. And they all die. So all of the citrus cultivars that he's been accumulating since 1898 are killed by the Department of Agriculture. And if there is a snapshot of <laughs> the government helping, that may be it. I wonder if there's like a Sally area of citrus in the department who is <laughs> set out to destroy him. Maybe that's the storyline there. Yeah, Swingle definitely would get up people's nose. I think if you were someone who was direct in his direct report, as opposed to the librarian of Congress, you were maybe a little less fond of Swingle. You didn't call him Tenny. Let's put it that way. But anyway, in 1941, he retires and the University of Miami says, why don't you start that up again? But at the University of Miami and we promise to never tell you what to do. <laughs> this is the Steven Soderbergh style retirement. Exactly. And so he retires there. And by the time his retirement is over, he has published 256 papers. So he is um, absolute redwood tree in the in the forest of of american botany and 
he dies in 1952, covered in honors, and one assumes smelling like oranges, because right. that's basically what he'd been doing in Miami for the rest of the time. But if you love a Tangelo, that's him. You love a date, that's him. You love a fig, that's him. You love pistachios, it's probably half him. Guavas, that's him. All kind of stuff that Tenny Swingle brought us. Right. And as far as his impact on American and also Canadian cooking goes, the date is the claim to fame because there's a period after the popularization of the date that goes up until about the mid-70s when the date is in about 70% of dessert recipes that you find in uh, cookbooks, especially as a sort of local organization style cookbooks mm-hmm. that we've talked about before, which reflect what people actually make. And so the date square, I guess, is probably the uh, foremost exponent of that. If you go to something where church ladies still make uh, squares, you may still find some date squares there. But everything, cookies, loaves, it, it had dates in it. It was uh, huge. Because it's a sweet, delicious hit of sugar. Yes. And if you get an actual reasonably fresh date instead of the dried up, desiccated dates that you've had in your cupboard for three years, those are quite nice and are fun They're on very a charcuterie yeah. board. And the figure of the 70% comes from uh, B. Dylan Hollis in his book, uh, Baking Yesteryear. So he's uh, his whole thing is he goes back and finds old recipe books and makes things now and they're full of dates. So what happened to the date is that somehow, uh, and it's not because the chocolate chip was invented then, because the chocolate chip was invented in 1937, but in the 70s, all of a sudden, the chocolate chip takes off and the date, uh, which had its real sort of heyday in the 40s, falls away as an ingredient in everyday baking. At the same time, I think baking probably starts to trail off as well. But since then, the role of the date has been taken by the chocolate chip and various other newer relatives, whether those would be the butterscotch chip or your you know, candy pieces and things, and the sorts of desserts that have dates in them. The real survivor, I guess, the most likely thing that you're likely to have that has dates in it now is a sticky toffee pudding. Yeah, or um, some sort of date pudding in general, right? Something that is built around the flavor of the date as opposed to using the date just for sweetness. Right. But in terms of what you're actually likely to, to make eat. or to yeah, see on a menu, right. it's mm-hmm. sticky toffee pudding is the survivor of, of the date dessert. But I will give one last date statistic, and this is one that Swingle was very proud when he calculated. In 1945, the taxes paid that year alone by date farmers amounted to the entire budget for his USDA date program for the previous 40 years. So pretty good. That sounds like someone making a statistic for his enemy who's about to shut (laughs) down his department. That does sound like someone sending something to FDR's uh, Department of Agriculture and saying, fun fact. Well, speaking of things being shut down, it's time to shut down uh, this particular hut. But uh, guess what? Around here, when you shut down one hut, another hut opens on the other side of this here message.
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathos. Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The moon scudding across the clouds, the click of needles by the fire, and the gentle, ah, wouldn't do that of someone in the corner welcomes us into a folkloric edition of the mythology hut, because we're going to talk folk tales and specifically we're going to talk a folk tale that is known as G three Oh three 18 dot three in the stiff Thompson index or eight one five in the Arn Thompson Uther index, which is uh, when the devil comes to skin a corpse and uh, the devil He's up to stuff. Sometimes he wants your skin. Sometimes you're dead. This is what happens. It's a fun, weird detail that, of course, is very transformable into a game scenario. Oh, yeah. Because the thing about the devil in folktales is that he's quite different than the devil that you hear about in church. Or in movies. is (laughs) a quite different creature entirely who's often up to extremely weird things, often because... The devil has been bolted on to an earlier story about a generic demon or evil spirit. An ogre, as they say. Yes. So basically, the the core of this story is that someone dies, and often because they struck a bargain with uh, the devil, but not always. Or they were just awful. Because there's all sorts of variations of this story. The devil's going to come and skin the corpse and take the skin. And that's not what we think of the devil doing. We think of him as coming and showing up for your soul. But it turns out that in a lot of these stories, the skin can then be worn either by the devil or some other subsidiary demon or ghost and impersonate the dead person, uh, perhaps to his relatives or, you know, who knows, they can send him on missions and so forth. And it's often the way the story is set out is the person who is about to die tips off someone else the fact that they, you know, for some reason, probably a deal they struck. They expect after they die, the devil's going to come and, and take their skin. And in the simplest version of this story, that person, the actual viewpoint character, goes and watches that happen. Yeah. Uh, but there are more complicated versions of the story that start to play into the way the devil uh, in folk tales is portrayed as a trickable figure who can be defeated sometimes by virtuous uh, churchmen or just as often by... Uh, canny, but good, ordinary people 
who then thwart the devil. So, Ken, I think you have a, a particularly fleshed out version of this or, or skinned out version, I guess, as it were, to, to uh, tell us. Yeah, the sort of the version in Arn Thompson Uther is called The Devil Who Skins a Corpse, also known as The Dead Rich Man. So, you know, I guess they, they both sell. It's for different audiences. So a, a, a poor man promises three times to hold a wake for a, wit- a rich man, not a party, but to s- a vigil to watch his body. Uh, when the rich man dies, the poor man goes to the cemetery. He draws a magic circle around himself in a lot of versions. The devil appears, digs up the grave, takes the corpse out of the coffin and skins it. And while the devil is putting the body in the coffin back into the grave, the poor man drags the skin into his circle and the devil wants it back because he wanted to wear the skin to go around and haunt people and impersonate the dead guy. And the man is able to say, what skin? What are you talking about? The devil's like, give me back the skin. He says, I don't know what, what I have a skin. You don't want my skin. The devil's like, no, with the skin in the circle. Anyway, he just keeps him yelling until dawn comes and the cock crows and the devil has to go away because that's the rules. And so then the poor guy reburies the skin with rich man and his job is done. And usually at some point, the devil has tried to bribe him to give the skin back. And so he's, there's money around and he can pick that up and have a better life. He's had a little reward. Right. And, uh, there is a version of this in Grimm's fairy tales called the grave mound, which is probably where most people have read this story, but Grimm just left the skin out. I think cause Grimm thought it was weird. <laughs> so it's just that the poor man is watching the devil and the boy who could not shudder shows up from a different Grimm story. So it's a, it's an Avengers moment. It's a crossover. Event. It's a crossover. And they together fool the devil into pouring gold into an empty boot. And, so many laughs are had. It's it's a real thigh slapper, but there's no skin in, uh, in in that one. And so it's useful for the rest of the story. But the actual skin part seems to be not so much German as it does Slavic and uh, Scandinavian and Lithuanian. That it seems right. to be that sort of eastward of Germany stretch where those stories all come from. Uh, but it makes it over to England as well. Well, everything makes it over to England. That's it, it, that's called uh, British. Right. And so the protective circle that you're in that protects the uh, devil from uh, getting at you is a, a feature of many of these versions of the story. And so uh, that's a fun little bit where the devil's trying to get at you and he can't. Often there's a hook involved uh, somehow and the, the narrative purpose of the hook sort of drifts from one story to another. And as happens in folktales, people as they you know retell them and they, they mutate over time, people sometimes forget the original point. So there's one of the English versions of this is the old woman who goes to solve the problem uses the hook to recover the body. So the devil only gets the skin. So in that version, the devil getting the skin is, is a win because they didn't get the rest of the body, which could then be reburied. So that is an example of, you know, culturally missing the uh, original point of the story. One of my favorite versions is very vivid and uh, might be very gameable in that instead of the devil in his his uh, sort of uh, horns and and uh, forked uh, tail and cloven hoof uh, form, uh, he shows up as a demonic dog. And the dog again lunges for the protective circle, doesn't get through, and it eats the body. But then the intervening character, the viewpoint character, uses the hook to recover the skin, which is, of course, the part in this version where you know that the skin is the thing you don't want the devil to get. And so the, the dog eats the body, but the devil doesn't get the skin to go around uh, haunting people. So this is just a scenario ready to go in which the player characters are the ones who realize that the devil is coming for somebody's skin. 
and they uh, know that uh, the devil's coming tonight. You give them limited time to faff about, and it's up to them to prevent the devil from uh, getting the skin. And uh, uh, that's where you start to bring in all sorts of uh, different ways that the protective circle can go wrong. And uh, you might also want to have the uh, characters unaware of the beginning of why would the devil want a skin? What's going on here? Why, why is it important to stop him? And uh, perhaps some research that would allow them to uh, confront him. It's a little tricky in that it's a defensive scenario where the characters are waiting for something to happen. But of course, you can control the pacing by fast forwarding to the thing happening. And of course, once you've put the notion of a magic skin of a dead person into the universe, that can show up. You can find it hung in a closet. Maybe someone, oh, are you in league with the devil and you wear dead people's skins and walk around and do bad things? Is that what you do? There is an Irish legend called the Spansel of Death, which is a hoop that you cut like a like a, a peeling an apple from a dead person from heel to head and back down without ever breaking the hoop. And then once you take that hoop, you do magic over it, and then you can tie someone up with the hoop, and then they have to do what you say. So maybe one of the things the devil's like is, look, I only need some of the skin to dress up as the guy, but I'll give you a spansel hoop, and you can have the love of the fair Marguerite if you want. That'd be fun, right? So you can have all manner of bits of dead people's skin showing up as magicable items. And I don't know that F20 games are really the ideal place to do sort of fairy tale type magic and story, but you can easily imagine this sort of story happening either at low levels or with a very, very powerful skin. Like this was the skin of the King of the Elves. Why does the devil want it? Or in this case, Orcus. Well, in an F20 world, you possibly get all of that character's levels when you wear a skin. Right. So Ooh, there that, we go. Uh, that would be a real problem. And uh, player characters being player characters, you then have the temptation of, well, do you want to wear the skin of this character who is more uh, powerful than you are? Do you want to go up a couple levels by becoming the elf king? That can't possibly go wrong. And Orcus is there saying, look, I need this skin, but I know where there's the skin of a 20th level paladin that you could exactly. have. Exactly. Because there's, there's one player in every group is going to wear the skin. Yeah, you know? someone's going to wear the skin. Yeah. And of course, in a, a more sort of investigative note, the mystery can begin with someone who's known to be dead commits a murder. What's going on with that? And then you uh, find out that it's uh, someone is using a uh, a skin suit uh, given them to them by the devil, or perhaps they're dealing with the devil himself. Or you exhume the body to make sure they're really dead and they're lying there with no skin. That's a great moment. Yeah. And that's when you discover the legend and uh, you can have the moment where, well, but the devil isn't real. How could this have happened? And it's like, is the devil real? Is, someone is the devil real? Or does someone else have the skin-walking technology here in our small town or wherever. And in Croatia, the devil blows the skin off a vampire, and the vampire comes out like a new-fledged snake or butterfly. Well, that is very scary indeed. Butterfly vampire skin. Ah! So, basically, this is a a weird, cool image from Folktales that uh, spawns too many possible scenarios for you to use them all. Uh, so, while you're thinking of which one to use, we're going to uh, pop up for a little break and then be right back with our final segment of this episode. Protect this podcast from skin seeking devils. 
by joining such beloved Patreon backers as James Kiley, John Buckley, Peter Darby, Trung Boy, and Merrick Shincariol. It's time once again to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to stop on the landing. We're going to wave to the painting of the uh, King of the Fire Salamander. He's going to give us a little wink. And then we're going to head on in to talk to the consulting occultist. And he's got a lot of notes and perhaps some triangles spread out before him because we have a big, big topic to cover in what has got to be a, a 101. We're going to discuss the Pythagoreans. We know uh, Pythagoras from geometry and, and mathematics, but he also spawned a, a sect, uh, branches of which became more and more mystical and w- were treated as more and more mystical by later people looking back on them. And of course, if we're looking at something that begins in the uh, 6th century BCE, we're nowhere near there being any sort of distinction between science and the esoteric. They're the same things up until around 150 years ago. Mm. But, Ken, why don't you start telling us the things that we need to know uh, that occultists care about when it comes to the Pythagoreans and Pythagoras. Yeah, Pythagoras was born on the island of Samos in 570 BC. Political turmoil drives him off the island. People who like Pythagoras and like democracy say that he objected to the tyranny on Samos. People who don't like Pythagoras often say he objected to all the democracy on Samos. But either way, he leaves. He travels around, uh, according to legend, Egypt, Babylon. Some legends have him in India, which is ridiculous. But Egypt and Babylon are not impossible in the 6th century. Egypt more likely than Babylon, let's say. And winds up in Croton in Italy, where he has sort of his first study group and he has a group of people that surround him. They live ascetically. They engage in partial vegetarianism. Exactly how vegetarian they are is a matter of controversy, but sort of vegetarian is still vegetarian. They also avoid fava beans in some versions of the story because beans are one of the places the soul goes while it's waiting to reincarnate. And that is the thing that Pythagoras teaches even more than triangles that goes from the earliest times down the notion of the transmigration of soul, the notion that soul moves on from body to body. And that is the central thesis of Pythagoras, along with something called the Musica Universalis, the notion that the entire created universe is in harmony and that its harmony can be depicted musically. Pythagoras is, of course, famously supposed to have invented the octave, to have discovered a pitch of harp strings, things like that. This may or may not be Pythagoras invented perfect pitch, more like Pythagoras invented a numerological theory explaining why harp strings were the way they were. But either way, that was a big part of his religious or mystical, again, big question mark. He said, I'm just worshiping Apollo. I don't know what you people are talking about. Uh, But they did physical exercises. They had regular hours of prayer. And if you're saying, Ken, that sounds a lot like Christian monasticism. And I would say someone had to invent it. And that might have been Pythagoras's other big invention. The harmonies are expressed numerologically, and Pythagoras is also probably the guy who comes up with the five regular solids that we now call Platonic solids, because, spoiler, Plato's a big old Pythagorean. His group is separated into two, the listeners, the akousmatikoi, 
and the learners, the mathematikoi, and for a while there, and you can still see historians of science who say, well, the mathematikoi are the ones doing real science, and the kuzmatikoi are just the mystics. That's not actually true. It's you have to listen before you can learn, and so it's a rank in the in the little group. Right, and there's a, a sort of a schism between those two groups, and that one of them accepts the wisdom of the other, and the other rejects the uh, doctrine of the other. Right, yeah. Once Pythagoras's charisma is not there to hold it together, the various groups do begin to fission and team up. Right, in, in a very precedented, or in this case, I guess, precedent-setting story. Precedent-setting way. Pythagoras seems to have had a major influence on Greek art and architecture, and you can say this is because of Pythagoras's teaching that everything becomes obsessed with numbers and ratios and proportions, or you can say steam engine time. Greek culture is getting more into proportion and ratios because they've got the wealth to build lots of beautiful statues and an interest in how it's done, and that's just what happened. But people can credit Pythagoras if they want. In that case, he would also be one of the fathers of architecture, which is yet another reason to venerate him. Right. So around this point, Pythagoreans rise to the elite, or Pythagorism is adopted by the elite, and that means that they have power. And it turns out, in a story that we don't understand very much about, that leads to a violent internal political struggle and Guess who gets set on fire? It's the Pythagoreans. Basically, you have a situation where, as you say, he begins by sort of becoming a very influential leader in Croton, joins the council. His disciples serve as mayors of various areas around Croton and Magna Graecia generally, the Greek cities in southern Italy. And the notion is that this is a either weird cult, or more likely, they just took one side in the great war of faction against faction that was endemic to all Greek cities, generally some form of democracy versus some form of tyranny. And sometimes the tyrants came in on the back of popular support. Sometimes the democracy was only 300 guys who were mad that no one was listening to them, whatever. But there's a lot of political back and forth. And because Pythagoreanism was so influential, it therefore gets drawn into the politics. And once people start setting things on fire, the Pythagoreans sort of take it in the chin there. Pythagoras's disciple or the disciple of his disciple, Philolus of Croton, is the next big figure. He sort of takes Pythagoreanism a little further. He believes in the unlimited universe of nature, physis, that encounters limits and becomes the known, cosmos. And this fundamental construct is basically the beginning of what we now recognize as the scientific version of how the universe is set out, because you'll note at no point does Philolus say God does anything. Philolus says the universe is in chaos, it encounters limits, the limits place it in order, harmonic order that we perceive. He believes in a spherical earth. He may be not the first guy to say it, but he says it really loud. And by, you know, a hundred years from him, everyone believes in a spherical earth, maybe even at the same time. Uh, he also believes in our counter earth, which we've talked about in a previous segment, and that there are 10, because 10 is a magic number, of planets, including the sun. They circle a central fire, and there is a empire and a heavenly fire on the outside. So fire is basically on both sides. Um, his disciple, Architus of Tarentum, is the first mathematical mechanical engineer and is hugely influential on Plato. And Plato, by the time of the Timaeus, is basically, as Bertrand Russell said, a Pythagorean, that there's not a lot of light between Plato and Pythagoras, certainly in, in many, many respects. And this is 
partly why Aristotle makes sure to write a history of Pythagoras in which Pythagoras says a lot of dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> so the sad part is that's almost the only history of Pythagoras that has survived and not all of it has survived. So Right. And often the only histories of things uh, left by classical texts are by writers blackguarding the thing or person yes. or uh, people that they're talking about. So that's not uncommon. No, Aristotle d- doesn't blackguard Pythagoras. He says, this is what Pythagoras taught. At the time, that was really smart. But now we know. That's just <laughs> high level Aristotle level blackguarding. It's Aristotle just being wonderful. So anyway, the Pythagoreans sort of enter a uh, a bit of a, a recension until the first century BC, when a group called the Neo-Pythagoreans, we call them that, they just probably called themselves Pythagoreans, blows the up. The true Pythagoreans who have rediscovered Pythagoreans. Exactly. Uh, basically, it's as the mystical side of Plato begins to rise to the ascent as mysticism in general is rising in uh, the Roman East. Apollonius of Tiana is generally identified as the first great Neo-Pythagorean. They emphasize the soul body or spirit matter dualism that they get out of Plato and that also has basically been percolating west from Persia over the last 600 years. And so that is laying a lot of groundwork for stuff that will bop up in Augustine and in Christianity later on, possibly to its detriment. Philo of Alexandria, though, becomes the first great Jewish Pythagorean, and he basically invents gematria as a way of reconciling Judaism and Pythagoras. And he says, well, if everything is harmonic, then the name of God is harmonic. Letters are harmonic. Numbers are harmonic. Letters are numbers. You can map God. And he sort of sets off what becomes Kabbalah. There's a Pythagorean known as Sextus, who we don't know anything else about, except he left a long list of proverbs, Pythagorean proverbs. This is in the second century. So sort of the high point of the Neo-Pythagorean movement. And then there's lots and lots of people who, at this point, Porphyry and Iamblichus, who are the first great Neoplatonists, they write biographies of Pythagoras, again, to claim him for Neoplatonism. And so, a lot of what we think we know about Pythagoras comes from Aristotle slagging off on Pythagoras, or cultists saying Pythagoras was actually one of us. Right. And and speaking of slagging off, one of the great make-em-ups that has then filtered down into people's belief was from... Hippolytus of Rome in the second century, who wrote a book refuting all heresies, all heresies against uh, his Christian doctrine, and lists Druidism, the religion of of the Celts, as one of these. And he explains that basically it owes its origins to Pythagoreanism and was brought to them by Zalmoxis, a fascinating mythological figure who's described as a, a human who achieved godhood and was either a, a slave to Pythagoras or his immortal mentor. And then, you know, later in his adventures goes off and teaches Pythagoreanism to uh, the, the Celts and that becomes Druidism. And that's a theme that is picked up hundreds of years later, over a thousand years later, by people trying to understand who uh, Druids are and attribute the values to them that they want to attribute to them. Yeah, Zalmoxis shows up in the Dracula dossier and probably could get his own hut at some point, or his own segment anyway, because his hut would be underground and full of the blood of impaled corpses, not to give it away. Anyway, another uh, sort of the last great Neo-Pythagorean, a guy named Hierocles of Alexandria, assembles the Golden Verses of Pythagoras, which is sort of greatest hits of the sentences of Sextus with some other stuff taken from Aristotle. And Hierocles 
basically is writing a 600-year-later refutation of Aristotle, saying that is not what he meant. Here's what he really meant. And, of course, here's what he really meant is now full of Neoplatonic codswallop, but there we are. But the Golden Verses survive into medieval times, as does the Timaeus, as does Sextus, which means that medieval Europeans are reading what they think is Pythagoras. And because Pythagoras invents music and astronomy and arithmetic, they are very impressed by him. He invented like half of the sciences. So he is revered as a great wise man. There is a Byzantine scholar named Michael Psellus who takes it on himself to assemble every existing fragment of Pythagoras. He's sort of a Neo-Pythagorean himself, gets himself in all kinds of trouble with the patriarchs. Uh, Dante uses Pythagorean numerology as the basis of the Divine Comedy. It's an ongoing intellectual strand throughout the Middle Ages. And then in the Renaissance, a guy named Constantine Lascaris, who is also basically a Pythagorean, translates all of Pythagoras into Latin and into other European languages, Italian, brings it to Italy, and it blows up huge and becomes another giant wave out of the Renaissance humanists, and specifically influencing Copernicus, who goes and says, well, I didn't invent heliocentrism. Pythagoras did that, as we know from these three Pythagorean scientists who studied it. He does not mention Aristarchus at all, who actually invented heliocentrism. <laughs> the Pythagoreans were very clear the sun orbits a central fire. But Right, but that was a time you wanted to point to somebody else as having right. thought that up. But also, Copernicus didn't want to point to the guy who actually did it. He wanted to point to the Pythagoreans, which implies that he's got some skin in the Pythagorean game. Kepler basically announces he's a Pythagorean. He's doing the numerical ratios to figure out the orbits of the planets. Isaac Newton says Pythagoras came up with gravity, and he, Isaac Newton, just did the math for it. They were really pro-Pythagoras, and even Leibniz, Newton's uh, frenemy, his version of the universe, the pre-established harmony, is fundamentally that Pythagorean concept that Philolus of Croton came up with, where the chaos of the universe hits rational limits, and so this universal harmony is knowable by every mind, and that's because every mind is a monad, According to our buddy John D, and John D's monad is Pythagorean. He is not the only occultist. Agrippa says the Pythagoras had super celestial or angelic insights. Reuchlin points out that the Kabbalah is basically Pythagoras and says Pythagoras was the first Kabbalist. And Robert Flood, in his own magical science, is a Pythagorean and he uses Pythagorean num numerology and in his musicology. And that's a lot of where Pythagorean numerology heads into the mainstream occult as opposed to straight Kabbalah as through Robert Flood. So Pythagoras is still getting it done there in the 1600s. Right. And that's around the period when people are looking at the Druids, picking up that little snippet that says that Zamox has taught them Pythagoreanism and says, oh, well, they were great scientists, the Druids, just like us and just like the Pythagoreans. Exactly. And so basically at a time before there's a split, before the esoteric and the scientific, people can look to a Pythagoras and his disciples and say, Either here is where the science comes from, or here is where the mystical insight comes from, and this is why all of the occultists that you've named are uh, citing him. And then again, this sort of thought, this attempt to salvage Pythagoras for science, continues down into at least the 1970s, where people are saying, remember our, our old akusmatikoi and mathematikoi, the attempt to say, well, there's real science that Pythagoras taught, and a bunch of goofs who couldn't do science... And that's where all the mysticism comes from. And that line of thought goes down pretty much to the turn of this century. And it's not until you have the sort of new classicists 
who come in and say, you know, after E.R. Dodds, who said this in the 40s, but anyway, who say, the classics are not one thing and another. It's not Neapolitan. It's Fudge Ripple at best and are beginning to sort of, I think, get to the actual truth, which was, as you say, that there just was no separation, certainly in the 6th century BC. And when you're inventing the monastery, there is going to be an unescapable amount of ritual that has to go along with it, just like there is in, say, the academic year now. So you can have your occultists in pretty much any era cite Pythagoras as their influence. You can associate a whole bunch of different mystical artifacts with him that you would have, you know, you know could find his original one-stringed instrument where he proved his harmonic theory. You could uh, sense the power of uh, unity in the universe. There's all sorts of kind of background details that you could use in order to put him in something, depending on what your cosmology is. Certainly his idea of a, uh, a universal, essentially benevolent harmony is another thought that would be ripped away from you by uh, your uh, encounter with the Lovecraftian old ones. If you're doing a sort of a spell jammer or even down to, you know, 17th century space pirates, you could maybe sail around with the Pythagorean universe, not the boring old solar system that we have, but one with a counter earth and a central fire and all the things ratcheting around and the constant beautiful music of heaven that gives you the ability to harmonically tune your ship's ropes to carry you from planet to planet in all manner of exciting ways. Well, on that note, I think it's time for you and I, Ken, to board our harmonic spaceship and uh, sail around the uh, strange Pythagorean universe for about a week and then come back with another episode of this here podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Refresh this podcast's pocket squares by joining estimable backers. Jan Zaleski. Adam Balderstone. Ben Brigoff. Chris Euning. And Sean Daniels. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design. I hate this stupid argument. Please start the next stupid argument. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's robindlaws.bisky.social. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>